I'm also excited to announce our newest sponsor, Tegas. Tegas has the world's largest collection of instantly available interviews on all the public and private companies you care about. All you have to do is log in and type in a stock ticker or a keyword. For example, if you're interested in gaming stocks, you can type in RBLX for Roblox. Or type in the keyword metaverse and instantly read hundreds of calls on the company and industry. Tegas actually makes primary research fun and effortless too. Instead of weeks and months, you can learn a new industry or company in hours, and all from those that know it best. Now, I only sponsor products that I use every day, and Tegas is no exception. Since joining, I spend nearly all my time reading Tegas calls on existing companies and new ideas into my portfolio, and I know you will too. So if you're interested, head on over to tegas.co forward slash value hive for a free trial to see for yourself. Again, that's tegas.co forward slash value hive. This episode is brought to you by Quarter. Quarter is the new way of doing company research. Quarter's first mission is to enable access to conference calls, investor presentations, transcripts, and earnings reports as frictionless as possible, straight to your pocket. I started using Quarter and I've never looked back. You can think of Quarter as the Spotify for all investor conference calls that you can think of. You can type in the ticker of whatever company you want, say it's Etsy, and you can get a list of all of their recent earnings calls and inside the earnings calls, you can listen and click the PDF and it'll show you investor presentations or prepared remarks that you can read alongside listening. The best part is, is you can choose the speeds. You can have 1x, 1.2, 1.5, which is my favorite, and you can star companies, make them your favorites, and you'll get notifications for new conference calls and they'll be right at the top of your app. So there's five key points to remember about Quarter. First, it's 100% free. They include companies from 12 markets and plan to add more over the, over the coming year. They prioritize requested companies, which you can do in the app, and they have a lot more in store. So check them out on wherever app store you have. It's Q-U-A-R-T-R. That's Q-U-A-R-T-R. Before we dive into today's conversation, I want to talk to you about MIT Investment Management Company, also known as Matimco, the investment office of MIT. Each year, Matimco invests with a handful of new emerging managers who it believes can earn exceptional long-term returns in support of MIT's mission. In order to help the emerging manager community more broadly, they created EmergingManagers.org, a website for emerging manager stock pickers. For those looking to start a stock picking fund or those just looking to learn about how others have done it, I highly recommend this site. You'll find essays and interviews by successful emerging managers, service providers used by MIT's own fund managers, essays Matimco has written for emerging stock pickers, and more. Matimco also occasionally and opportunistically hires new members for their investment team. To view the job description, please visit matimco.org slash global dash investor. That's M-I-T-I-M-C-O dot O-R-G slash global dash investor. The Matimco team spends their time learning about great businesses and investments, working with exceptional investors around the world in order to support generations of MIT innovators. We are talking with at Bluth Capital, the one and only anonymous account on Twitter. Bluth has decided to surface the podcast landscape, and we're going to discuss his VC experience and how it relates to big tech and SPACs. We'll also discuss moats and the big onslaught from some of the bigger players in the various industries that Bluth invests. Third, we will uncover the four horsemen of the new venture know-how, which is Bluth's fancy way of saying four different companies will considerably change how they do business over the next five to 10 years. And then we'll also touch on risks that Bluth is acutely studying as we are 11 years into a bull market. And we will finally touch on NFTs, 
some passive macro bailouts and commodity super cycles. So Bluth, with all that said, thanks so much for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Brandon, and uh, putting together such a good podcast. It's been a lot of fun going through your back catalog. So when you started on Twitter, what was what was what was the reason to join the platform? And then how did you come up with the name Bluth Capital? Yeah, so um, Twitter, I, I mean, who follows me knows I'm part of Tesla Q. I kind of got started on that because my wife was sick and tired of hearing me just be incredulous at what Musk was able to get away with. And so I kind of joined for that to see some, frankly, amazing, amazing short research. And you kind of are able to weave between, I, th I think it was Upslope Capital or something said that the shorts make you stay, they suck up so much of your time that they uh, make you not touch your lungs. And that couldn't be more true. Um, but when you were doing Tesla, it was the idea that, um, you know, maybe you didn't want your ID be associated with it because people get really mad. And um, I'm going to say like three or four people stopped me on the street 10, 20, 10, 15 years ago and kept telling me I look like Will Arnett. So when I had to pick a handle, it was actually like, okay, well, he's the most ridiculous character on television. Uh, he does all the wrong things. You should never listen to him. None of this is investment advice. And um, so it was like, it was kind of easy to do that. And when I have met people from Twitter offline, I just tell them at the, at the restaurant, I'm just like, hey, you know, I am actually look like Will Arnett. And they, first thing they say to me is, oh my God, you do. So it was really easy to lean into that persona. <laughs> That's fantastic. So you have an interesting background. You spent some time as an insurance auditor. You also did some VC work in um, the Bay Area. Walk us through what you learned as a VC, and we can dive right into kind of how all that relates to what you're seeing in big tech and the SPAC space. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I always loved technology when I was I was like a nerd, like a ton of people. And um, what happened is really what you're going to see is I kind of went through my career and life as kind of experiencing both extremes. I went to a very conservative undergraduate school and then a very liberal grad school. Um, and then I started as an auditor. I audited two insurance companies. One was um, Kemper, which the Valentine, Valentine, uh, and the Forest Green Forest Green First Forest Products crew. You know, with Larry Sweats, um, he was actually the CIO there when I was there. And Kemper was an insurance company that invested too much in tech, and they blew up in the dot com. And when your ratios fall below a certain moment, below a certain level, the state insurance commissioner just shuts you down. And they say, we need to protect policyholders. You're going to sell off all the pieces of your business and the stuff you can't sell off, you're going to go into runoff. So that was on one extreme. And then the other one, I audited this little beautiful insurance company in Peoria, Illinois called RLI. They got as uh, insuring, insuring um, contact lenses. They own, huh. I want to say 25% of Maui Gym. They're like this little compounder and they have one of my favorite invisible moats, which is insurance companies in small markets where they're a key employer, because that means that everybody there has to think about risk. They got no other job opportunities. There's right. not, they can't just leave one company and go to another company. And so if you blow up, it's like, you're blowing up your kid's potential employment. You're blowing up. You, I mean, the town is at risk on this. You see this with Progressive, you see it with State Farm, you see it with RLI. And so it makes sure that they think long-term and they think conservatively. And RLI actually specializes in dozens of niches, like volcanoes in Hawaii, um, hurricane or wind damage, et cetera. So all these guys do is think about catastrophes all 
belong. So I know my capital is pretty safe with them. Sound like you walk through, you walk through it, and, and they have um, they have like different areas of the headquarters that just have all the maps of all the ways, all the destruction and pestilence and everything like that. So, but I went out west to San Francisco because I want to work in tech, and I ended up um, being fortunate to get a VC job. And I got it around the start of the iPhone. And it was a super, super exciting time where you were just seeing these industries um, ramping up. And I think what people don't know totally about um, VC or it's underappreciated is most of your startups, you try to sell them to big tech because most of them don't work. And when they don't work, you try to make sure that there was some IP, the team was awesome something or other and big tech would buy them. So you study everything that big tech does because they're your number one customer. Um, it's, it's actually, VC is almost a moat for big tech because it's funding, it's outsourced R&D and funds oh. it. And they try to maintain great relationships with the acquirers. And so, you know, this thing's working. I'm not sure the founder wants to quit, the CEO wants to quit. Because he said, hey, I'm happy with $55 million. I don't necessarily want, need $2 billion. And they try to sell it to it. So it's like big tech doesn't really get caught blindsided, um, in part because VCs are so active in trying to make sure that big tech knows what they're doing. That's fascinating. Uh, I, never, I never thought of that as like an outsourced way for big tech to do R&D. But I want to pull back from the your, your, your time as an insurance auditor. Do you spend a lot of time investing or researching insurance companies now in public markets? Um, if so, or I guess if not, why don't you? Um, and is it, is it because, you know, you just kind of have this affinity for tech and, and you're not so interested in, you know, public, public um, insurance companies? Um, I actually, I own a lot of insurance and obviously I would classify Berkshire as an insurance company that owns a lot of Apple. Um, and I guess the Burlington Northern as well, but, um, I don't spend as much time on uh, insurance because I, it's kind of like, if you know it so well and things don't change that much, um, in terms of like, if I had a never sell, it's probably the insurance companies. And once you, once you bought them and they've gone up a bunch, like they just don't really take much mental time. It's kind of like they said, you know, Buffett, like his whole calendar will say like he had a haircut. That's like his, his day will be like, Oh, and he has a haircut. And then he goes to Dairy Queen with his grandkids. Yeah. Um, the insurance is, you know, is, so you get those and some of these, I check in on them, you know, I try not, I try, it would take a ton to get me to sell it. Um, and my hope is that it just keeps compounding and keeps like RLI to special dividends, progressive special dividends, special dividends are my favorite thing in the world that make you feel like an owner. Um, and it shows that they're, that management is not going to try to build empires. Um, so I think that uh, I, I don't spend time on it because it's just such a wonderful business that I think you don't have to. Got it. No, that makes sense. And then fast forward to your time as a VC, walk us through some of maybe the big wins and the big losses you've had in that space as an investor, or even as you know, a VC analyst looking at companies. I know when we did the Peloton Twitter spaces, you mentioned that you guys passed on on, on, on Peloton at one point. So maybe walk us through a couple of examples, some highlights, right? Along with those lowlights. Yeah. So Peloton was, um, I will admit, so I, everyone's going to say something like this, but I wanted to do it, but in part because I knew I was leaving for my next gig and I wanted a free bike. So I'll just admit that I was, and I knew I wasn't sure I wasn't good at it, but I said, we should do this. I get this bike. It's amazing. Um, 
but the, you know, the partners got, we got hung up on the $40 a month because it was in contrast to Netflix. And so you thought, man, this is expensive. But um, one of the partners abroad and just said Foley was a total winner. And I don't know why we didn't do it, but um, as a result, it had been on my radar and I got the bike 20, 2018 and was, you know, the, the um, just like everybody else, just loved it, got in much better shape. And then, as I mentioned on the spaces, I eventually churned out of it because I graduated to nature and now I bike a lot outside. Um, and I started saying, man, I'm not really using this. And then the Wall Street Journal had some article about how all the bikes are back ordered. And I said, well, if now is ever the time to get rid of it. So I, um, I got rid of it and I got the, um, the Nordic track iFit, which is the bike that like has an incline and goes down and there's an embedded fan. And it's just a lot cheaper. I think it's like a hundred bucks a year for the, for the program. So I kind of have that as backup now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do suggest that anybody who wants to get in shape gets in, gets a uh, Peloton. They're like, they're amazing. But for, for some other deals, I got lucky. Um, I was very fortunate to invest in a few. I brought in uh, one company that seed stage that recently became a unicorn. Um, it's a financial advice company. I'm a CPA. I brought it into the partners and said, guys, like, this is what people come out of the woodwork to ask me questions like this. I don't want to send it to bank rate. Bank rates like the worst site I've ever seen. Um, and it's an interactive tool that helps you make smarter financial decisions. And this was kind of pre before um, VC investment in finance became really in vogue. So it probably hit its unicorn status because it's very in vogue now. Um, we, we did another one that I'm surprised hasn't spacked that, um, but we were the B. It's raised money at multiple, multiple, uh, I think it's raised money at 5 billion, I think. Um, wow. And I'm, I can't believe it hasn't spacked yet. I'm not close to it anymore. Um, but it's in a, a lot of people on Twitter actually know about it. It's, it's, um, it's in the home services space. Um, so it's a huge, huge town. Ooh, I think I might know what it is, but I'm not going to say it. (laughs) Yeah. We can talk about offline. Yeah. We'll Um, talk about it offline. So, um, but it's just a great company with, I mean, just a fantastic management team and they were really, really smart guys doing the right stuff. And we looked at it and we said, Hey, let's take a bet on the team. And they have just taken it and ran with it. Um, so, um, but then as, as stated, a lot of them don't work out, right? Mm-hmm. So what you do is um, you wake up every day and you believe that things could be big and you could work and you could spend your entire day seeing like, since you watch the whole industry, but then you see that most things like wither and die and some rejuvenate, right? Slack was a failed video game. Um, Instagram started as like bourbon, which was probably closer to being like WeChat. It tried to do too much and then they dropped parts off of it and then they have found product market fit and it just took off. So what you do is like, you just, you spend a lot of time watching the space and trying to figure out where the puck's going to be. Yep. But at the same, and a lot of times that puck is with big tech. So you need to know everything that big tech does. And that's fun to watch. I mean, everybody on Twitter does it already. It's just fun to watch what they do. Rest in peace, Google leader. That was my, probably my favorite product ever. Along with Google Plus. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. And Google Buzz. I mean, you see these companies taking these shots on goal, right? And they're willing yep. to. Yeah, 100%. So one of the things that I want to discuss, particularly with SPACs, was your Twitter thread, um, the SPAC attack thread on Virgin Galactic. 
and 23 and me. So you wrote this thread back in February of 2021 and you kind of highlight I guess everything that's wrong with 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 SPACs and 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 some of the absurdities that are going on in that space. Why don't you walk through um the the thread for the listeners that may not have followed you at that time and haven't actually seen the thread. Okay. Um that was fun. Uh and I want to take this moment I was I was actually DMing with somebody on Twitter. And they had sent the thing over and I just got, I was like, had that moment of just um, work ethic and was just like, I'm going to go and I'm going to go through this one. And I'm just going to like tear it apart the way that you would a VC. Um, and just the, all the things you're going to check, check against. And um, I, I want to say for SPACs, right? Biotech investing is accepted here, right? I, I mean, I don't understand biotech. Those things can literally moon. Everything can work with them, et cetera. But the, the SPACs, so, so what it is, is 23andMe was Virgin Galactic Acquisition Corp, um, or maybe it was just Virgin Group Acquisition Corp, Corp. Richard Branson, you know, he floated Virgin Galactic with Chamath. He sold basically every single share that he was allowed to sell by contract. Um, company's been around 16 years. He just loves liquidity from the capital markets. And 23andMe was a home DNA test that ended up getting investment from some premier VCs and effectively like they ran out of customers. They laid off a bunch of people. Um, they tried to pivot to some drug company, but they had investment from GlaxoSmithKline, Google Health, et cetera. And none of these companies were interested in buying them. And so the SPAC comes along and you know, I know a lot of VCs that were just like, this is, they couldn't believe they, they had portfolio investments that they assumed would be zero or talent acquisitions. Um, and we're going to make it. And then all of a sudden you could put lipstick on anything and IPO it. So I went through and, and the, the thread, I mean, you guys can find it if you want The thread, it was like, they, they didn't show why axes, axes, axes. Um, they didn't label certain things. They did different scales on the same chart. They quoted a Forbes.com uh, article from like six years ago. And I don't know if people know this, like anybody can publish the Forbes. Getting in the magazine's hard, but they have like a you know an extended um, content network, so it's not really like hard to get an article. It's not that hard, I guess. So it's but it was also six years old. So I mean, it was just I, I was um, almost offended. I had no position because at the time SPACs were like mooning every single day. Yeah. Um, I had no position. Their warrant unlock happens, I believe, October 1st. So that's coming up. So that could be exciting in the next week. I might open a position and play into that. So, um, but VC, to talk real quick on VC is like, when you buy a SPAC, I think a lot of people out there think they're being VCs and you're not. Um, VCs is like, it's, it's a cottage industry of connections and know-how and introductions where you're actually adding value to the investments you make. So like, here's an example of what Andreessen Horowitz does. They have industry night and they bring in CEOs from big tech, from other companies, and they introduce them to all the portfolio companies. And it's an amazing advantage that they give their portfolio companies because they can land as fortune 500 companies. Yeah. Um, when I buy a SPAC, I'm not doing that. Right. <laughs> like I'm just a passive equity holder. So I, it could be a good idea, but you're not really a VC. And I think some people kind of think that they are. But investing in something at a 20 million valuation is very different or a hundred million valuation is very different than investing in something at a $2.7 billion 
DSPAC valuation. So um, I don't know. But in caveat on problems, some of these things have rocketed. And if you're playing that game, good for you. Yeah. And I think the, the idea or the allure that SPAC investing is closer to venture investing, it's interesting because I wonder if a lot of that is because it's not a traditional IPO process. And so maybe retail investors feel like they're getting closer to, you know, some sort of value capture that hasn't happened yet via a traditional IPO. Um, but again, kind of like what you said, a lot of these SPACs were going public at multi-billion dollar valuations, which in the traditional venture space, I mean, say you're in the series A or the seed stage. I mean, those numbers aren't happening. You're investing in much, much, much lower valuation cap ranges. Um, but what's interesting to note is in this thread about 23andMe, you said come 2024, this will be an 18 year old company that isn't adjusted EBITDA profitable. And it's not even forecasted to get profitable. And it's just, <laughs> I mean, that's just unbelievable over 18 years to not turn up even an adjusted EBITDA profit, which is a soft, you know, a softened massaged number. Yeah. They're, um, their forecast wasn't even a hockey stick. It was like a Nike swoosh. Their <laughs> next two years were going to go down and then they were going to turn the corner, you know, in 2025 or something. So it was amazing. I mean, it's still worth $2.2 billion, I think, or something, if I look at my, um, take a look at it. Um, but, it, you know, it's, it was, it was, it was a rewarding experience as in part, I, I had some people on DM say some actual, some big funds loaded the thread up. Um, went through it at some partners meeting or something. And hey, that's fun. That's what makes Twitter fun is you yep. look at this stuff. Sometimes you're shouting into the void. Other times, you know, you're chatting with coworkers, your quote unquote coworkers. That's what I want to say. Like all the people I interact with on Twitter, I'm so deeply appreciative of it. They're smart. They're funny. I mean, it's like the best social network by far. And it's an amazing utility. Um, and you meet people like you. Well, I appreciate that. A question I have is if SPAC investing isn't one of the closest things public investors can get to venture investing, what are some ways that a public investor can mimic VC style investing in the public markets? Uh, is it just micro cap companies or is it, is it something a little bit more nuanced than that? Um, I actually think, you know, following you, you do a good job. I, I would say micro cap companies, you know, not every company, um, is for example like shopify right um at one point they were small i mean i don't remember how small they were but you could connect the dots and you could say i didn't to my eternal chagrin um but you could connect the dots and you can say they're really building something that has value here and is going to be very lasting and toby is very good at what he does um if you want to do vc investing really i mean it's people hate this advice but the Bay Area was, at least it was when I was there. Um, there's just, I mean, now everyone's going to Miami or something. I don't know, but um, it was, there was just so much happening there. And there are real network effects when the entire physical area is focused on the same outcomes. Um, and that was the best way to say, you know, I, when you're there, so how, how am I going to get involved with this? And it's like, really the first step is moving out there. So mm -hmm. transfer your company over there, get a job at big tech. And they just start meeting people. But I think for public markets, small caps, um, you'll see a little bit of this new venture know-how. I actually think some of these companies are going to be VC-like. 
um, or have those opportunities. So that's kind of why they got on my radar, which we can discuss those, I don't know, um, when you want. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a super fun business. It was a great job. It's a tough career because it's so small. Hmm. Um, it's, it's, it's not like at a big bank where you can get poached by another or you walk across the street and, you know, there's 50, 50 other finance firms. Um, venture, I think it's like Texas Pacific Group alone, like the amount of money that they raise equals half of all of VC, all of VC raised or something. Like private equity is just so much bigger. Um, yeah. So I'm kind of rambling. Um, no, that's fine. And I've got, I've got one more, I've got one more thought just to kind of wrap up this VC experience background. One of the, uh, I guess, hypotheses I've had on markets probably for the last six or seven months. Um, and I've been just trying to talk to it or talk about it to, to people that I you know, consider much smarter than me about, about how I'm thinking. And I want to get your thoughts on this because you have that VC background. My, my bet and my hypothesis in public markets is that over time, the best public market investors will look like early stage VC investors um, in terms of how they think about businesses, how they connect the dots, how they try to create alternative realities based on small subsets of data and um, really just like a team and some parts, some, whether it's tangible or intangible assets. What do you think about that hypothesis? Do you think that's even directionally correct? And then, and then if not, maybe what are some ways that I can kind of tailor that mental model that I'm trying to frame over the, you know, about the next 20, 30 years in public markets? Yeah. So that's an interesting model. I would, I would think about adjusting it slightly, which is the best VCs also know that big tech is like unassailable. So they truly understand how powerful, you know, Google, Facebook, Apple, Adobe, Microsoft, um, and how profitable those companies can be. So I think that the best public market investors are going to have to, you should be buying some of these dominant companies um, as well. You should, you know, benefit because a VC wants to benefit from their liquidity and you should benefit from their success as well. Um, but it's an interesting because what I think that that ignores from the public markets is buybacks and um, financial engineering. I think it was, you know, Lawrence Hamtel um, made a comment about Altria and then it's like, they've returned more capital. Like they, they couldn't have bought back all the stock or something because they just created too much cash. And so they've been able to grow EPS by buying back shares. Otherwise they would have grown it. Their, their per share growth would have made them bigger than the entire U S economy or something, something ridiculous. And I'm sure that's not it, but if they had actually compounded, they compounded the EPS way faster than they compounded the business growth. Yeah. And there's a lot of great public companies um, that you have the opportunity to invest in uh, where you can benefit from that extra lever that a VC can't. Right. Right. Like these don't use debt. Right. And that's, so you better grow fast or you're scared of debt, right? You use a little bit of it. So I think you want to find, um, you definitely should be looking at micro caps. I think your theory is definitely correct. When you see things and you put together like a mosaic theory and you see things coming together and you understand at the right moments that like this changes everything. Yeah, then you should buy and hold on. Yeah. Um, because it's, uh, I think somebody else on, on, I think it's post-market always mentions about coilers. 
you've got some of these companies that can meander around sideways and then all of a sudden it clicks everybody realizes it clicks and then it's off to the races for probably the next five to ten years yeah I mean, look at, look at Tesla's chart. Like that's, that, that's one of the things I really like doing is going back and looking at these long-term price charts. And I'm just pulling Tesla up on the, on the weekly or on the, on the monthly. And from, let's see, from 2014 to 2019, Tesla went nowhere. It was just kind of trading in this range between call it, I mean, this is, I don't know if this is split adjusted in trading view, but between, you know, 75 and, and 33. And then in 2019, it, it broke out to 80 bucks and then went from 80 to, you know, where it is now. So, um, well, the- I think there was some, you know, um, as being Tesla Q, I got to say, there's probably some manipulation that went along with that. And, yeah. um, it conveniently, strangely broke out right when the F- New York fed up to their reverse repo operations. We just had this entire liftoff in the market in October of 2019. Yep. That's making like the first 8% sell-off of the COVID crash just brought us back to October, which was like, oh, like I was, I didn't buy, one of the reasons I didn't buy then, which was nice, um, was because I said, oh, we're just at the levels we were in, in October. We, we had this ridiculous liftoff that came out of nowhere. Um, it, it happened to Apple, Tesla, the S&P, uh, and I'm not smart enough to understand all of macro, but it is very curious timing. Yeah. That when the, when they started doing that, everything just magically lifted. Yeah. I mean, it's incredible. It's, it's, you know, for like five years of, of nothing. And then from 19 to 21 up 800%. Yeah. And it it's, didn't, it's business performance. It's business performance did not match that. So. <laughs> yep. <laughs> We're not we're not going to get into Tesla Q because that would well, consume the, that would that would consume yeah. the entire podcast. But it probably would help for ratings and stuff like that. Like I would probably get a lot of views if I just talked nonstop about Tesla Q. Um, but we've got better things to talk <laughs> or about, like or, Tesla bull, or, or being a Tesla bull. Yeah, um, that's true. But we've got we've got better things to talk about, like moats and big onslaught. And I like the way you put this. And I'm going to use this to kind of frame this, this next set of discussions is the easiest way to find the best modes is seeing which ones survive the strongest attacks. And uh, I think a great example of this that you don't have mentioned in here and, you know, I'm, I'm, I would love, love to get your thoughts on is Square. And I wrote or not wrote, I read that book by, I think it's Jim McKelvey, one of the co-founders of Square um, that talked about the time when Apple tried to enter their business and they were like, oh my gosh, you know, we're screwed. What do we do? And, and they ended up just doing nothing. They just kind of stayed the course and focused on their business. And eventually Amazon dropped out of the race and Square is this massively successful company that we know today. But you give a few ideas here. I mean, you've got nine different bullet points. So why don't you walk us through this mental model of, of big onslaught and how we can use that to find these really com- competitively durable moats? Yeah. So, and the square thing is great. I, I bought square at $9. Um, that was a VC style investment at $9. Market cap was two and a half billion or something. Then mm-hmm. just big, a big tech company will acquire this thing for four or $5 billion. It, it's so your margin of safety is huge. And then unfortunately, I mean, or I, I exited my square when they got into Bitcoin just because I don't understand Bitcoin. So, um, when that started driving Square, you know, it was it was a multi-bagger for me. But um, I said, I'm out. I don't get it anymore. Um, but what you're talking about is 
people talk about moats and they say, look at this mode and they have this thing and it's a mode and they go on Twitter and they point to something and they say it's a moat. And you could be right, but wouldn't it be better to look at the moats that you can tell that they're there because they've actually been attacked and you saw that they survived. Then you mm -hmm. can point to that and you say, that is a moat. Um, probably the biggest one, you know, Google got super serious at attacking with Google Plus. They said something like Larry Page put, it, it was supposed to be, social was supposed to be built into everything. They brought out the howitzer, the nuclear bombs, et cetera, and they failed. And when you saw them fail, that was a great time to buy Facebook because you said nobody is going to, it, it is unassailable. You know that that moat is unassailable now. Same thing when, and then the funny thing was then Facebook has done it to other product. When Facebook entered the dating, mar uh, the dating uh, market, Match sold off like crazy. And then if you pay attention to that and you see that the Facebook dating product is not getting any success or traction with all of Facebook's events that they, that they are very good at using, then it's like, go long match. Because you know that that moat, you knew it was there, but now you saw how powerful it is. Yep. And it goes into the concept of, of Lindy, which everybody's seemingly talking now. Um, I hadn't thought of it that way, but it's actually, it dovetails nicely with that, which is if you've survived something like that, um, you know, Microsoft threw everything at Apple's iPhone. They bought Nokia, right? And Android threw everything at it. Amazon went at it. And when you saw that uh, Apple survived all that, right? It was like, then every, any error they made would have been unforced, like keeping the screens small, yeah. which they finally fixed. And then it was off to the races. The other ones you have here, you look at like something that I think the market doesn't appreciate. I know you like the stock um, is Nintendo. Yep. I mean, Nintendo is the definition of Lindy <laughs> in video games. They've survived every, they've survived the biggest companies moving into their space. And not only that, they've made several unforced errors. I mean, the history of their innovation is full of flops like Virtual Boy, um, the Nintendo Wii U. I mean, so they, they make these mistakes all the time, but their IP is so powerful and their innovation when they get it right is so great. So, I mean, Nintendo's going to be around for another 300 years. I just, unless they get bought out for something or other, but we know that that's going to be exist and the market doesn't give them the, the hasn't de-risked their business model the way that I think it should because yeah. Nintendo's forever. Um, and then one other, we'll talk on this later, but, the CVS and Walgreens with the JP Morgan, Berkshire Hathaway and Amazon uh, health startup they were gonna do called Haven. So they said they were gonna launch it. It was gonna be free of a profit motive to try to fix healthcare. And it was gonna start with, and we can't make any headway with this. Yeah. So I looked at that and I said, this is, I mean, I'm gonna go on CVS, very long CVS. Um, and now, you know, CVS and Walgreens are critical national healthcare infrastructure. Um, so now they're like part and parcel part of the government. Um, so I, I don't know, you look at some of those and that's been a way, that, that's been a way for me to find some longs. Um, and I guess maybe one other one would have been, I'm long Lionsgate because okay. I think IP, I think we're seeing left and right that IP is being um, categorically undervalued. Um, we see like Lionsgate's market cap, I want to say is, is it 2 billion, 3 2. billion? 2.8 billion. I'm looking at it right now. It's gotten 2. crushed. 8. It went from uh, $21 a share down to 13. So 
Yeah. And I, w- I was long before that and I sold some outside of this channel and then I went, got back into it. Um, some of these budgets that you're seeing, the money you're seeing, Netflix's annual content spend, I want to say is 21 billion, I think. Yeah, something like that. I think that's what they have earmarked. Apple is spending two, $300 million on shows. Amazon spent $250 million for the rights to make Middle Earth shows that don't involve anything from the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit. Yeah. <laughs> like that's 10% of Liongate's market cap. And Liongate has John Wick, the Saw franchise, they have La La Land, they did the Hunger Games, they have a TV studio, they did Orange is the New Black. And one of the, the chairman of Lionsgate, Mark Rachesky, he bought into Marvel when it was like in bankruptcy or near bankruptcy. Wow. So I think that guy's got a huge win. Is that one of the and greatest he bets probably looks at of all time? Marvel in success like, in, and in, says, in, in, man, I really like, I should have held on to that one. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, I got one other entertainment thing. So I think he's, my guess is probably swinging for a huge, uh, huge exit. Um, yeah. I think it was that they they own Twilight, and when Netflix got Twilight, the four Twilight movies were in the top ten streamed. It was like the first, second, third, and seventh. So it's wow. like this this content is is kicking Netflix's original programming's ass, um, and it's you know two and a half billion dollars. So it's one tenth of Netflix's uh, annual budget spend. That's fascinating. I, I never even thought of Lionsgate, but I mean, that makes sense with, with what you said, how much content companies are spending. seems like you're doing a rough sum of the parts with Lionsgate IP and saying like, look, if someone bought this at even call it, you know, five and a half, $6 billion with the amount of IP you're getting, that's actually a pretty good deal considering how much you would have to spend to try to recreate something like that. But then like even if you try to recreate something like it, you might not get the same like fandom and you know cult like affinity for some of these shows. Correct, and um, I forgot to bring up you know Amazon. I don't know if the deal will go through because antitrust, but they are buying MGM for eight point five billion dollars. Wow! Right, and MGM has a nice back catalog, and they got the James Bond franchise. That's kind of like their their crown jewel, but that's eight and a half billion dollars. I mean. I would think that Lionsgate is probably worth somewhere in the same ballpark if it were to pursue M&A, which would be a f- 300%, 400% from where it is now. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of like a deep value. It's a, it's, it's a free radical, I think was some, somebody used that term. Maybe it was John Malone said the media industry has a bunch of free radicals and there's a lot of M&A happening. So I hold on to that and I watched La La Land last night. So just How was you know, that? really support. It's, it was I hadn't watched it in like five years and it's a better movie now than I gave it credit for in the beginning I think okay. I watched it and I thought I thought like it's good and I watched it last night and I, and I thought it's really good <laughs> I've I've actually never seen it so it's it's one I probably need to watch it won best picture for like 30 seconds and then they had to uh they read they read the wrong one so it was it was the shortest best picture there was a moment in time where everyone thought it won best picture that's hilarious. Do you think there's any, I mean, it's, this is, this is going to be a loaded question, but any sort of big onslaughts you are anticipating or predicting on the horizon from companies that many investors might not think. Uh, so whether it's incumbents being attacked by competitors or niche players that are dominating markets that other incumbents are trying to, um, 
you know, infringe on their competitive advantage that aren't listed here? So I think about this a lot. Um, big tech has kind of gotten itself into a profitable detente. You know, Google provides Apple's search functionality and they make a ton of money off of it. And Apple gets paid by Google and it drops straight to the line. And Amazon, you know, doesn't seem to be pursuing um, direct head-to-head -head competition. They're doing lots of weird devices with Echo. They're trying to do an end around. But I have a hard time when you think long-term to think that Amazon doesn't enter productivity software. Hmm. Um, they don't have, it doesn't cannibalize anything that they do. Um, and it doesn't, it seems weird for me that they would want to, and they can offer it to all their AWS customers. It seems weird for me that Google offers G Suite and Amazon doesn't offer something like that. It's like, just like this really big product hole and Amazon has had such success in B2B services. Um, but I mean, I don't know, but I'm surprised they haven't done it, but it's hard for me to think on the long term that Amazon doesn't start offering it, it, like some sort of, you know, d domain names. I don't know. I mean, that's the, that's the kind of one. I, Amazon is going to always be the big onslaught. They're going to move yeah. into your space and they'll probably kill you. Probably. But if they don't kill you, I'm probably going to buy your stock. <laughs> because I'm going to say, you've survived Amazon. I think you can survive pretty much anything. I think I mean, well, Chewy, right? Chewy kind of is, is um, right? Amazon kind of moved into the pet space. Yep. They have on all their 404 pages um, when they don't load up. And Chewy's done well and thrived. It makes me wonder if a company like GoDaddy should be on my watch list. Where if they, if if Amazon does try to enter that space, like whether it's domains or domains, and GoDaddy somehow uh, stays resilient in that, I mean that 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 might turn out to be an interesting idea. At eleven yeah, billion dollars, that would be really. I mean, Google already offers Google domains, and GoDaddy has done fine. I think Two Cows is somehow affiliated with they, they do something else too two cows is an interesting deep value that i have not um gotten through uh i need to do a deep dive on it it's a really interesting company um what's the ticker is it, it's t-u-c-o-w-s was the two cows they used to do domains but they also moved into something else there's there's a great thread that somebody else did on twitter about it um the symbol is tcx I have it's never been, heard of this company. They used to sell domains, but now they're doing their ISP too or something or other. I, hmm. I said it was a great, there was a great thread. It's on my list of something to do a deep dive with. Um, cool. The CEO seems like he's very prudent in his capital allocation. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just I figure for big onslaught, it's like um, Amazon's going to keep trying with healthcare. They're not going to give up for that. The spend's too big. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there's a nice exception would be grocery stores. So Amazon moved into Whole Foods, but I think the industry just is just so not great that going yeah. long the other grocery would not have been a good move. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. Uh, let's pivot now to this discussion on the four horsemen of the new venture know-how, which you know, again, the first question I have is how did you come up with that name? And then the second question is um, you mentioned, you mentioned these four companies, right? There's CVS, there's Philip Morris, there's Ford, and then Google. So walk us through 
why you you know thought of the name the four horsemen of the new venture know how and 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 what that actually means so what is it it's um it's another name um some writer sports journalist for another name you know was covering Notre Dame and he called the four players the four horsemen uh, it's supposed to be pestilence it's it's a biblical right it's pestilence something or other and I, I'm I should know all this and I, and I don't I just was thinking around and I did a Twitter thread and I found these four names and people suggested a bunch of stuff and I researched it and I said you know they're all kind of doing the same thing and what I think the other way to maybe phrase this is they're pulling an adobe for the rest of them so everyone said after after pulling an adobe and switching as software it, i mean it was just the stock went straight up and then all the other software companies copied them you know change of business models are sometimes worth even more than creating a new product now not every company can do that but the idea was what are some big companies with all their advantages that realize what's going on and they're making the necessary investments to shift their business model to something that could be massively more profitable. So CVS buying Aetna, that deal probably shouldn't have went through in a competitive market, but healthcare isn't competitive. So I actually thought it was great that, they, that it went through because by vertically integrating, CVS can now do things and offer things by owning the insurer and the PBM and the retail location that nobody else in the system can do. And so you think about like PayPal, when you fund your account, and then you move your money around between PayPal accounts. PayPal is like, this is great because they don't have to pay um, the credit card fees. Everything moves internally and it's just pure profit. So if I'm an Aetna, if I'm insured by Aetna and my kid gets an ear infection and CVS can get to the point where rather than call it the pediatrician because it's the 15th ear infection and I know what an ear infection is, I go to a minute clinic and I get my prescription they've created, there, there's been a massive amount of profit that they've kept inside the system without having to pay out to a hospital, pay out to a, to my pediatrician's office. And they, and then also when I'm there, I might buy some of the convenience store stuff. They offer milk, they have bread, they have cereal, they have cigarettes, right? Or no, sorry, they stopped selling cigarettes five or six years before this deal. And I love that because Larry Merlot, you, you could see in, with hindsight, the strategy that they're putting together said, how can we be a healthcare company while still selling cigarettes? Um, so you see that they've been planning this for a long time. It's really well managed. And the new CEO, Karen, is um, she's seemingly doing a good job. And CVS, right? I think you're long too. They, they, beat, they seemingly beat every single quarter. And mm. the market hates it. But they're going to turn on buybacks um, probably this fall. If not next year, they're paying down debt. And they're going to turn on buybacks. And then it's just going to, you know, they should, the EPS should be able to compound after that if the valuation doesn't increase. Um, yeah. So it's funny, we're talking about tobacco. Moving on to Philip Morris. Philip Morris, Morris's revert, reduced risk products and their ICOS system is, and I did a little thread on this. Um, then you talk to the CEO and he talks about like a tobacco-free future. He's making the investments that he has to make in order to ensure the survival of the industry or of, of his business. Mm-hmm. And I did a thread on um, Coke Zero, and it was the same deal. I would have churned out as a Coke customer had they not, had they been content with Diet Coke, which I think doesn't taste at all like Coke. And then they created this Coke Zero product, and I didn't even realize this was happening. And I switched to it, and then years later, I realized my consumer relationship with the Coke has been extended by twenty to thirty years, 
right? Maybe even more because they created a product that was reduced risk that I was comfortable um, consuming. And so when you see the CEO of uh, Philip Morris, he talks about this, he's positioning the company this way. And if they can get the regulatory system correct, um, I mean, any politician who truly wants to stop smoking, they should not be taxing these reduced risk products. They should be making sure that they're cheaper. So you switch away from it. Now, of course, they're going to try to tax it. But Philip Morris has a pretty credible argument that these are better for public health. So how can you tax these at the same rate? Um, so I, I, I could see that if this thing works, it's going to really work. And then you're going to know that Philip Morris will be around for another 100 years. Um, and if that's the case, at a 7% dividend, you're getting paid to wait. Is it 7? Maybe it's 5 I was about to say, I think, uh, I think Altria is the 7%. Looks like Philip Morris is five. Yeah. Yes. Got those confused. I'm long both. So, um, so then, um, we'll move on to the other, the other, the third one, the third one's Ford. Yeah. This one's interesting. So Jim Farley, the CEO has said that like, he knows who butters their bread and it's the Ford transits. Um, so Ford sells five to 6 million vehicles a year. They sell about 150,000 transits um, and they want to offer that they're offering this product called Ford Pro. It's basically going to be SaaS for their vehicles, for the customers who want, um, who have a need for a higher level of analytics. So when you think about pulling an Adobe, you've got an OEM manufacturer who lay on effectively a software product that's going to be locked into their vehicles. Mm-hmm. and increase the customer lifetime value. I mean, you know, like with Otis, the service contract of Otis was always the most profitable part of an elevator. And similarly, you look and you think if Ford can add this thing in, it's going to make money on you, whether you buy a new car or not. And one of the ways that I think I know I'm right here, at least I think I'm right, is why in the world would Apple and big tech be getting into the car industry if they didn't realize, especially Apple, that this has a huge long tail of ancillary services to sell. And Apple, right, they say in tech, you try to commoditize your complement. Apple never entered the TV space because they could create Apple TV, plug it into your HDMI, and then effectively they've neutralized the TV as a threat because you can stay in the ecosystem while um, using a TV that they didn't make. But if they're moving into the EV space, I think they see that there's a chance that I could be getting services from my car that Apple, that an Apple or Android could be commoditized. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, but I find this very, very interesting. And I, one of the things I like is I don't think anybody thinks this, I, I don't, I don't think pe- many people think about it this way. They think, oh, it's Ford and it's a shitty car OEM. And I say, it is a car OEM. They are having the best lineup of vehicles they've had in my entire lifetime. The Broncos are selling well. The Mustang Mach-E is well-reviewed. The F-150 Lightning, I think, is going to be a hit. And you get this kind of optionality on creating a service stream. And when you say that the market values service revenue, recurring service revenue at a higher multiple, I mean, imagine, I think you could re-rate significantly if something that's been crapped on for an industry that's been crapped on for 15 to 20 years, all of a sudden starts looking good. Um, and then the final one is Google. I don't think we got to talk that much about it, but Google 
they know how to bring up new ventures that are sitting inside of them and they have maps, G Suite, or I guess now it's Space. Their G Cloud is in there, Waymo. They just have some of the other bets, I think, to have a lot of opportunity. And I think I'm trying to figure out how to unlock them. I mean, I would hope. G Cloud is, should be a tremendous focus of their efforts. Um, and Google Workspace, G Suite, it hasn't gotten better and I don't understand why. Um, I think there's a huge opportunity there when they look at what Microsoft is doing. Um, so I think they could turn that back on. I don't know. So that one's, I mean, everyone knows that Google makes all the other bets. And I think Waymo, I mean, if self-driving vehicles are going to happen, I think Waymo is so far ahead of everybody else. And um, they, they were the first working on it. They've got all of Google's compute. And then self-driving vehicles becomes a balance sheet um, it's not about your customer base. It's about your balance sheet. Cause if you can flood the market with cars, you will always have the cheapest fares. You'll always have the highest utilization and no one else will enter the industry. And any little parallel there is Applebee's like they're, they pursued small towns that had a population that could only support one quick service or one fast casual or casual restaurant, fine dining restaurant, if you will. Um, so all the competitors would say we're, we're, we can't go to that city cause we would just split the market and it wouldn't be worth it to us. So I, I see Waymo has a chance like that. Yeah. And I think, I think the Ford example is, is, is really intriguing. And one question I have is how, and you, you mentioned the market re-rates or rates service revenue, recurring service revenue, much higher than say these cyclical OEM type sales, how, and right. this, this, this might be a, uh, you know, a fool's, a fool's question because it's, you know, you, there's, there's no way to answer, but how high of a percent of revenue would Ford have to generate from its service business to, um, to kind of get that re-rating in the market from just an OEM to a service business? Because we're kind of seeing the same thing happen in Nintendo, right? Where many people, and again, I'm kind of talking, talking my own names here. I'm, I'm, I'm long Nintendo, but one of the one of the tenets of this thesis is Nintendo is transforming from a cyclical hardware business to a secular service and 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 software digital business, and I'm kind of seeing the same thing happen here with this thesis that you have in Ford. So how how much revenue would they have to generate before the market's like okay, this isn't necessarily an OEM dominant business. They have a lot of recurring revenue. We'll value them like we do an Otis or something. I have. Truthfully, I have no idea, but I think in a cyclical adding service revenue to a cyclical business that, you know, in an industry where historically there's been flirtation with bankruptcy is like, you know, Nintendo hasn't been almost bankrupt, I don't believe. Um, so if you can take that off the table, I think that it makes the, the it makes the, the whole space so much more investable. Um, now, of course, Ford shouldn't then just add more debt to counteract these things. But if they look and they say, we've created an ongoing revenue stream, um, a follow-on service of software. We know when our fleet customers' oil changes need to be done and we can send people out there um, and get them get involved with that. Um, I would think that, I mean, I would, I would hope it re-rates. And if not, I mean, you know, they can always buy back stock or just increase the dividend. Um, but I would think that could you, cause everyone's always scared. Like, is there going to be a crash? Is the industry going to have what it had in 2009, 2010? Um, 
And they'd say, oh, there's actual revenue coming in, um, ongoing revenue that seems pretty hardy. I would hope that the I would hope that the impact would be bigger, but I don't know what percentage it has to be for that. Um, and then maybe they'll just spin it out as an MLP or something. <laughs> just That'd be fantastic. I want to own only the Ford Ford tech services, right? Yeah. Yep. No, you read you read my mind there. I'm gonna shift our conversation to a discussion on uh, what 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 you title passive macro bailouts and then self critical alpha. And I'm gonna start this start this discussion with something we chatted about before we hit record was technical analysis and how you use it in your process. Um, you know, it's I've 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 tweeted about it many times and I've said it in the podcast, but I am a I'm a user of classical charting principles. So, you know, simple lines, one to two lines on the charts, trying to find support and resistance. And um, a lot of value investors seem to poo-poo the idea and kind of look at it as witchcraft, which um, I think you used to as well back in the past before before you, before you started <laughs> using it. So walk us through what, what role technicals play in your process today. Yeah, so... I got to give a shout out to the Valtwit folk um, who've really kind of started making me appreciate that it's the market is a big machine. It's not just, um, it's more of a machine than I thought. You know, you've got Jim Carson, he's Jam Croissant, Mike Green, Chris Cole, um, Max Rakotansky. There's this handle Canadian soccer mom. She's wonderful. Ben Eifert, Colorado Travis, all these guys. And I came in as a tourist and started saying, you know, the market wasn't, when we started hitting new highs in 2020, uh, I was saying, you know, this, this, it just seems like the tail's wagging the dog. And so I started doing more research on it and then, you know, ran into these folk and they're super smart um, and they post stuff and, and they're right a lot. <laughs> it was like, well, I can th- thought that it was all squiggles and it was all whatever it is, but you know, these, these people are right. So I shut up my game. So what I started doing, and I suggest this to anybody, um, and I can suggest this, it's not financial advice because this, this isn't, doesn't involve pressing buy or sell. Um, I say, draw the damn lines. So you pull up a chart and draw what you think is a trend line or a channel or a price support and extend it out into the future. And then just go walk away. Don't make any trades. Just, you know, it'll stay in the system. And then you, what you realize is you'll come back two, three months later and there'll be, you know, some company misses earnings and it falls like a rock and it stops, boom, right at that line. And there can be a lot of reasons for why this is the case. Some of it is um, reflexive. If everyone's drawing lines and everyone's buying at lines, then it actually becomes self-fulfilling. Mm-hmm. But it start, it becomes amazing how often you see it. Um, I had my awakening. I was wrong for, I mean, I, 10 years. I wish that I had look, looked at this sooner. Um, so for me, I still do mainly fundamental analysis. Um, try to think of where the puck's going to be. Um, I do some event arbitrage, but I try to layer that on at the at the end to say like, if I'm wrong, um, where do I think there's going to be some resistance? So where do I think I can get out at the smallest loss, right? Or if I'm right and it's running and it's running on nothing, I say where do I think this is going to kind of top out? And I might sell a covered call at that uh, moment. Try to enhance some yield. Um, and if it blasts right through it, okay, it was a profitable swing trade. That's the case. My, my four horsemen, I don't really do this very much because I think they're, uh, hopefully they're more like a coiler and I don't, I don't want to miss it. Um, yeah. If I just got away from me, I'd be so mad if I think that these things have that far to run. Um, 
So that's what's really helpful for me. And it was, it's, it's an acquired skill. I don't even know if I have the skill, but I think you said something about like, somebody said it's a heartbeat. Yeah. So before, yeah, before, before we were talking, um, you know, live, live on here, what I, what I said is Bruce Kovner had, I think it was, uh, I think it was Bruce Kovner. So I don't want to, you know, put, put, uh, attach attach names to people that didn't say things but i'm pretty sure it was him he basically said look doctors when they go to check on their patients they use uh you know they take the temperature they take your heart rate they take your blood pressure they just want to get the vitals right and bruce makes the analogy that a, a market's technicals are are the equivalent of like the vitals for 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 the human so um why, why would a doctor go into a market and, or go into a patient uh, visit and not understand kind of these, um, you know, elementary bio biomarkers that then he can use to help inform certain decisions that he makes. And, you know, not saying that it works on every company or every, every market, but that's basically the point of technical analysis is look, even if you don't use it, it's important to learn it because other people use it. And, again, it does kind of give you a feel of just human psychology. Like what are people buying? What are people selling? What's the, what's the psychology going on? Where's the momentum? Like, is this stock in a massive downtrend that you can just see it's people are selling and it's going down and, or is it in an uptrend? And every time it hits its 50 day moving average, it keeps going higher and buyers always come into support. Like those things, um, you know, you don't have to use them, but it's important to know them. Yeah. And I think with that, I love that analogy that um, you relayed. And I think appreciating the market more as a machine has helped me out a lot. Um, You know, for, for example, you know, we had the sell-off two days ago and some of these heavily shorted names flat, if not up. Yep. And you realize that um, a lot of people were degrossing. And so they were, they were having to close out some of their short positions because their longs were down. And they have been overexposed. And all of a sudden, something that went from rational, why would Beyond Meat be up on a day that the whole market sells off? Um, nobody's deciding when it was, when it was um, you know, down the day before, nobody's deciding that they want to go long um, fake meat today. And when you realize that that's the game that's being played, and I think as you flooded the market with liquidity and the rise of passive, as Mike Green has you know, um, belabored, you should check out all of his podcasts if you haven't. Um, it has me constantly, it has me appreciating the, the market as a machine more. That's really Jam, um, Jim Carson's specialty. But also, if you understand that it's more of a machine and that flows matter more, it lets you be more rational when things aren't making sense. Because if you can find a way that they might be making sense, you might prevent yourself from making a stupid trade. And I'm always constantly questioning, you know, did my stock go up because, um, everybody else was, was short it or people hate it. And today is a degrossing day or did it go up because of passive flows? Am I actually wrong? Right. Even the ones that are winners, you know, it's easy to say, uh, you know, everything was long, but we had in 2018, um, we had a massive sell-off. We, we sold off into Q3 despite the fact that earnings were good. And then we bombed around Christmas until the fed saved us. And so I wonder, you know, what would happen had they not done that? I don't know. But we basic, and then we basically chopped sideways from January through June of 2019 until Powell at the Chicago Fed Speaks um, meeting told that he was, he was going to drop rates as an insurance cut. 
And after that, like literally at that moment, the market bottomed out and it went straight up the rest of 2019. Yep. So is it my stock picking skill? I don't know. I, I'd like to be a little bit more humble than the idea that all of my longs went up for six straight months because of any personal insight versus, you know, some macro, macro bailout. And so I think now, you know, the whole market moves on, on what's happening macro, because I think that you can make a case that a lot of the gains were just given to us, uh, given to the market and they might get, but it's tricky. Yeah. Uh, Jim, Jim Carson has a nice analogy here where he was saying, um, when you're up in an airplane, it doesn't how high you are as long as the engines have gas, right? You don't say, oh, I'm at 37,000 feet and I'm more risky than I was at 20,000 feet. But the moment you run out of gas, how high you are is all that matters. And my analogy is that if we pump liquidity in and valuation multiples keep getting stretched, I think of it like a trapeze. And the value investors are the net. They'll step in when things come to a certain, when it's based on fundamentals, they'll step in and they'll buy. But even the value investors don't want to step in when they necessarily see the people falling at a certain speed. And so as we keep moving these acrobatic tricks higher and higher away from the net, it makes the speed of the fall get faster and faster and faster. And even if you're a value investor, you don't want to buy when you think it's the stock market's going to fall. I might say, I'm happy to buy at 100, but if I think that it's going to be 90 tomorrow, I'll wait for tomorrow. And then when it bounces, I'll try to uh, chase it. So I think what's happening now is, I, I don't know. I don't know how it plays out. It's definitely a difficult market for that. Um, but man, we've had a lot of multiple expansion in a lot of names. Yeah, no doubt. And it's, again, it's one of those things where, um, you know, know your, know your timeframes and kind of know your strategy. One, one thing I'm starting to see is people on Twitter saying, you know, how long-term they are and then commenting on the day-to-day -day movement of stocks while at the same time saying, you know, hey, I don't use technicals or I only focus on the long-term. It's, you know, there's an element of you, you, you can't have your cake and eat it too, right? Like if you're, if you're, if you're going to tweet about a stock being green one day versus red the next day, you can't at the same time say, oh, well, technical analysis doesn't matter. Cause I mean, what, what we're all trying to do at the end of the day is read price action and buy, if we're long, buy stocks that we think are going to go higher over time. Like that's, that's kind of the North star for everybody there. And I think everybody knows this, especially CEOs, because you so many pump press releases and you're like, if you're truly a long-term, if beyond meat was truly, you know, the long-term total addressable market was humongous that company would not need to put out a press release for everything that they do. Um, I think I've read 17 press releases that they've created meatballs, which I mean, they had burger patties. So shrinking a burger patty into a ball, I wouldn't consider to be, you know, press worthy, but they pay the money for the press release and it mm -hmm. flows through the Bloomberg's and it flows through TD Ameritrade's new system because they're trying to pump it. Um, yeah. And then, you know, around earnings, we see the reality, what happened. Yeah. And it goes um, back, it kind of it kind of goes back to what what Peter Thiel says, where if a company, you know, let's say if a company is a true monopoly, right, and they've got monopoly profits, they will try as hard as they can to say how much competition they have and how little they're differentiated <laughs> from from their competitors. Where if you have a company in a highly competitive industry and there's not much differentiation, they will signal to the market and they will tell everybody how differentiated they are because of X, Y, Z. And it's just like this really cool inverse, <laughs> yeah. 
inverse kind of thinking that makes sense that, you know, of course, Teal says so well, but um, I mean, it, 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 it really does hit home, right? Because if Beyond Meat thought that they had a chance to take this market and really, you know, monopolize the alternative meat space, uh, part of me would wonder if they would even want to say too much, right? Like as they try to take yeah. that entire market. Yeah. Um, it's funny you, um, or on this thing with the, with the passive, just to close on this one was, was Disney is a great example where I said on Twitter years ago, before Disney's plus launch, I said, this is the easiest layup in the history of business. Um, if you had kids, you understood that Disney was going to grab an annual payment out of you at basically whatever price they want. And I mean, it's been a great investment, but Disney's fundamentals haven't held up or they haven't because of COVID. So COVID has really crushed the parks, the parks business, which was a huge profit center. TV was, was an issue that they, they used to make a lot of money, right? Reselling to TV channels, mm -hmm. streaming, you could say sort of cannibalize that, but that's good. They have a direct relationship, but the price just stays high there. And so now I think, Hey man, like, thank goodness it's not trading on fundamentals. Um, which, you know, was, was the, was the case was there. But when you mentioned about the, um, uh, the Peter Thiel's saying that you have all this competition. When the FTC went after the Google in 2017, or no, not 20, in 2014 or 15, or under the Obama administration, Eric Schmidt wrote this. I mean, he went on for, I think, five or six pages on Siri. And that Siri was huge competition because if you've searched via voice, right, no one would go to a keyword. And that's a great example. We know that Siri has not affected Google's business basically at all. Um, but, you know, he was quick to highlight that it was the, the biggest competitive threat that Google had ever faced. And they were moments away from, you know, having everything crumble and fall apart, um, despite being one of the, you know, the widest moat businesses in the history of Earth. Yeah. Um, but that's a good transition for the antitrust is I tweet a lot about it. I do a lot of research on it. Um, we are now seeing with regulation with China. I mean, everyone, oh, regulation, China, regulation. And the tone at the top of this current administration could not be more different than the laissez-faire Jay Clayton and um, Trump administration, although Clayton was SEC. And I'm long a lot of these companies. I also am just a pro-consumer and I pro-democracy and pro some of many of these items. And I just think it would be, we'd have a better world and our products would work better for us if some of the lock-in was broken. Um, and it, I, I actually would like to see I'd love if these companies got ahead of it. I think that their moats are actually so big that if they stopped, you know, hogging out and instead were just content to pig out, um, they'd cool a lot of the threats on it. And I, I think like Apple's iMessage is one. I'd like iMessage to be everywhere. I would like my Android friends to be on iMessage so I can give them tapbacks. And yeah. iMessage is larger than all of SMS texting combined. So how is Apple not a tele telecommunications provider? How do they avoid that regulation when they have a text message service and FaceTime video, which is larger than AT&T and Verizon, right? Like, yeah. so I look at some of those things and if you read Lena Khan's um, and Rohit Chopra, you, re you read the stuff that they say in Lena Khan's Amazon antitrust uh, paradox. One of the diligence hacks I like is you go to some of these people and then you look at the followers and the followers of the mutual shared followers. So if you want to find I saw on your, um, your podcast with Dan McMurtry, he said, you know, I'm looking for blind spots in other investors. 
go to some of these regulators, look at who's following them, and you'll see that they're chronically underfollowed. And you look and say, if you're trying to find blind spots, this is one for me where I say, I know that literally not many people are following them. Yeah. They don't think that whatever they tweet is important. So it's something out of, you know, attention a lot. The new antitrust paradigm is not that different. It's different than the last 30 years, but before 30, you know, um, before Robert Bork, uh, the regulation was rampant. You know, Ford was prevented from buying a spark plug manufacturer. It was a vertically integrated deal. And they said no, because that would make the spark plug manufacturing market. The Supreme Court ruled on it. Said, you know, they, it would make too much concentration and then Ford could crush the other spark plug manufacturers and put them out of business. We're not gonna allow the deal. So we kind of have this stuff now where people say, well, I'm a consumer, how am I losing? I mean, it's like, you, you might not be losing, but the old regime was different. Yep. No, great points, all great points. And it kind of brings us to the last part of this conversation, which is what you're currently really interested in. And I know you you put a couple notes here on commodity super cycles, and it looks like you have one special new tech buy that you think everyone's <laughs> overlooking. So why don't we touch on the commodity super cycle? Because uh, we're actually working on some things uh, at MacroOps around this commodity super cycle. Uh, I don't touch it too much. Alex kind of does all that macro stuff, but it's interesting nonetheless. And then we'll finish with that special new tech buy. Yeah, so I think um, Jeremy Raper at Raper Capital is probably a great name on this. Just some of these commodities names are trading at such low valuations that, and they're minting such crazy profits that what I look for, and I'm not great at this at all. I mean, I have a long in mosaic is kind of my main one, is if they're entering forward contracts, that lasts, you know, 90 to 180 days out. That means that every single day that the commodities don't collapse, you, the company's locking in just so much cash flow. They're gonna be retiring more debt. They're gonna be buying back shares. And so it's, it's a, at some point, the bear thesis has to break. Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't, these companies are gonna be, they're gonna enter the next downturn with way less debt than they did the previous downturn. Yep. So they're worth more in that scenario too. They're, they've been de-risked. And so what I like is, you know, every single day that passes, you look and you say, like Mosaic um, announces their monthly uh, sales and their, their prices every single month. So every 30 days, I can say it kept going. It kept going. It kept going. Um, I think they trade, I think they're trading at like 20% free cash flow yield right now. Wow. Um, and a lot of these commodities are the same where people just think, oh, it's going to end in 90 days. It's like, you know, if it ends in 14 months, 15 months, like the company's going to be debt-free and have retired 20% of its shares. So I like that every single day, it's like, it's like you're getting a dividend every single day. Um, So there's some great names to follow on Twitter. There's a lot of people that are way better at that stuff than me. Um, But it's very, very interesting if you're a value investor because the cash flow is real, it's there and it's, and it's getting locked into the future. So um, the losses will not be borne by these companies. They'll be borne by the purchasers who locked into a forward contract. Hmm. And then the final, um, the, the long that I've been doing that I've been kind of recently entered, but it kind of fit a lot of the big mode and big onslaught was um, it's Yelp. Oh, Yelp, when you actually think about it, <laughs> I mean, it survived a pretty big onslaught. 
You there? Did I lose you? No, I'm still here. Can you hear me? Uh, yeah. Um, Yelp, I mean, Google came at Yelp with everything they had, including stealing all of its content. <laughs> they scraped it and they put it into it. And a lot of people still use Yelp. And it was decently profitable. It was buying back a bunch of shares. If you take a look um, before March 20, before COVID crash, they were buying back uh, $100 million a year, I think, mm-hmm. um, about that. They generate cash. Their valuation is not big at all. It's, um, it's like a $2.7 billion company. Yeah, and they were buying back about $100 million uh, a year. So the share counts were decreasing. It survived big onslaught. And when you think about its value, um, I don't understand with the delivery companies in just a fight to the death um, for demand generation. Mm -hmm. And what's happening in local commerce with DoorDash and Uber and Grubhub and Angie's List and Thumbtack and like all of these, you've got this thing that's valued at $3 billion. It generates cash and it's survived as a unique asset. Um, it's, it's survived Facebook. I mean, Facebook sort of came after it, not mm-hmm. really directly, but Facebook does local Google came at it. So I don't understand how a big player doesn't take, doesn't take them out. Um, but if not, it's profitable as retiring shares. And, uh, I like the product. I mean, I don't know. Do you use Yelp? I don't, I don't use Yelp. Um, and what do you use? Uh, I think I just use Google reviews, right? Like when I look for restaurants, I ah, think I just go on Google. I'm telling. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> what I thought. <laughs> so you go, so you, you read user reviews on uh, Google? Yeah, it's either Google or I think OpenTable is the other one I use. Oh, yeah. See, I don't trust Google's and I go to Yelp's. OpenTable and... Open is a uh, benchmark investment and I'm a big fan of Gurley. So, you know, gotta gotta pay homage to that to that website. Yeah. Um, they were, they bought by booking, right? Yeah. They were bought under nice. So that was a great open table, right? So mm-hmm. booking bought them, Priceline bought them because they were buying demand generation. So I don't understand how, if you have a delivery service to sell, how Yelp is not a demand generation platform for you that if a competitor bought it and then, you know, um, Sherlocked it or a competitor bought it and then shut it down or, preferred itself over you i mean that's going to hurt your business so it's going to hurt um especially in these volume games like delivery so that's one i was kind of thinking about it and i was like wait a second i still use yelp i mean obviously you don't but and i looked and i said it's cheap it generates cash flow and uh it's actually survived um so i probably should own some chunk in it I'll let you, uh, when, when, when we, uh, finish recording and we're, and we're offline, I'll tell you about an idea that kind of fits that mold that, um, I'm still researching, but it's, it's, it's small enough where I don't want to, you know, talk about it too much, but I think, I think you'd be interested. So, um, let's, What's let's get doing? to the, you, know, you, buy it, you buy it and then you talk about it on your podcast all the time. That's how things work in finance. Now you just <laughs> yeah, but see, buy I don't it like that. <laughs> you're going to buy Tesla and then talk about how it's the future of everything. No, 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 no. That's not, that's not, that's not my game, but. Never, you know, the no cows will be killed after Beyond Meat is, uh, you know, finally achieves its, its final victory that we only eat cake meat there from <laughs> after that. So. The TAM uh, for, yeah. uh, the, the TAM for Beyond Meat is every single American human <laughs> consumer. <laughs> I know. Wait till they reinvent vegetables too. It's going to be crazy. I was, I you said that was a, Ar- Arby's, Arby's made a meat carrot. 
I know it's hilarious. That is that is amazing. Um, all right, so final final questions I've got for you, Bluth. Uh, where can people go to find out more about you? I know you're on Twitter. Uh, let us know if there's any other avenues that people can reach you. I think it's just it's just Twitter, and and I think of people on Twitter that I interact with this kind of coworkers sort of way. Like sometimes you have ideas and you bounce ideas off each other. Sometimes you just bitch about the bosses, um, and sometimes you're clowning around going to happy hour. Um, and I really love Twitter. I mean, it's been amazing. It's this amazing utility. Um, they're trying to turn it into a social network when really I would just pay for it to be a better utility. I would mm-hmm. love if search worked better and I could categorize bookmarks. Um, I think I have 8,000 bookmarks and it's just sitting in one slop. Yeah. Um, <laughs> just this one big, um, yeah, but that's, a, I, I love Twitter and, and I always, I'm happy to meet up offline. Uh, I've had a few drinks and coffees with people that I met from Twitter and just, a, it's just a fantastic community. And if you're ever in Chicago, you know, give me a ping and we'll go out and get beers. That sounds good. And then uh, last question I've got for you. If you could have dinner with one person from the past or the present, who would it be and why? So I was able to prepare for this one because of your listening to your previous podcasts. But uh, I was a accounting and mathematics guy um, and I love figuring out how things work. And I've been always been a big fan of Richard Feynman. He was just one of the best physicists in the world. You can go and you can look up his old lectures and he walks through basically like how everything works together from how Galileo figured things out from Copernicus and the actual experiments that they did to figure out how the cosmos work. And I just love being in the presence of people who can convey knowledge like that. And he also like played bongo drums. He seems like he was a really fun guy. Um, so you look and say, I think dinner would be like amazing. My, my brain would just explode. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually would suggest anybody, you can go find these, they're the, the, the Feynman lectures and just go through and you're like, this is just, it's just amazing. And I actually think that some people involved with it are kind of like that, where they sit, they go on Twitter and they explain the machinations of the market. And you're just like, holy, I didn't even know things worked like this. Um, yeah. So it's a, it being, in, being in the presence of that sort of genius would just be, it would be amazing. And I suggest everybody goes and take, takes a look at him. Awesome. Well, Bluth, thanks so much. I mean, if you can hear actually in the background, there's a massive storm coming my way. So um, <laughs> I'm going to I'm gonna have to hop offline, but can't wait to release this. Thank you so much for allowing me to have an hour and a half of your time. And I know people, um, especially those that follow you on Twitter and those that may not know you, uh, will get a lot of value out of this and hopefully you'll earn a few more follows. Um, thanks for coming on. Yeah, I just, I just hoping I can help out where I was there and I'm always happy to talk with people. And, um, I mean, I don't know everything. I make my share of bad bets too. Um, but it's been a good year so far and, um, just happy to get back a little bit. Awesome. Thanks so much.